Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today I'm going to be talking about something that has been missing, something that's been missing from this podcast uh, probably since episode one. So one of my big stories is how from the 18th to the 19th century, we get the modern world. And I see that as a process of new ways of organizing people and new ways of making things developing in a feedback loop of invention, production, organization. It's important to note what's driving this. What's driving this are complicated uh, interactions between organizations and objects that increase in complexity, scope, and all of those nice things as you get more available energy in the system. This is companies digging up coal that because they have more coal are able to invest more in steam engines and so dig deeper coal pits and make ever cheaper coal. This is entrepreneurs then experimenting with these steam engines and figuring out new ways of making steam engines through talking in clubs and societies and writing books and letters to one another. This is scientific societies debating about what the steam engine can be put to. These are then government agencies that start to regulate the locomotive industries that jump up out of this new steam engine produced economy. There is something really big missing from this story that other historians might tell you about. Other historians might tell you a very different story, a story that doesn't depend upon objects and organizations, but a story that might be a little bit more familiar, a story that depends on ideas and institutions. Now, one of the big flavors of these, this kind of thinking is an idea that sometime in the 17th century, people in Europe, intellectuals in Europe, broke away from tradition. They cast off the handcuffs of, you know, Christian authority, and they started to think anew. They started to judge things not uh, based on what kinds of authorities were brought to bear on it, but how useful it was. They started to do experiments not by reading books, but by experimenting with things. This is why this time period is sometimes called the Age of Reason because it's reason that starts to step into the driver's seat, not kings, not Bibles, not Aristotle. And it also goes by the name of the Enlightenment. So is there room in my story that's driven not by, you know, people and books, but by coal and steel for the Enlightenment? Of course, I think so, but the room might not be very commodious. It might not satisfy a lot of the people who want to keep the Enlightenment in the story of history. So first we have to pin down what the Enlightenment actually is and why it matters. One of the problems that we face when we try to do this is that it's really hard to figure out who exactly is an Enlightenment thinker and what exactly the Enlightenment is, because people don't go walking around their lives with big placards saying what kind of person they are. Uh, you know, hipsters, we can identify hipsters. We know that hipsters are a thing, a big phenomena in the world today that matters to us. But there's a lot of debate about who actually is a hipster and what it means. Same thing with the Enlightenment. There's a lot of thinkers that we think are definitely Enlightenment thinkers, Voltaire, Diderot, Kant. 
but there's a lot of people who are really on the margins, and there's a lot of things that are on the margins. And part of the reason for this is that the word that we use to describe all of these practices and time periods, the Enlightenment, wasn't generally used by the people we want to call Enlightenment thinkers. Uh, if you do a quick Google Ngram, which is a way that you can use the Google Books corpus to see uh, how uh, words rise and fall in relative frequency over time, you see that the word enlightenment starts to kind of pick up, not in the 1700s when we'd expect, not in 1750, not even with the publication of the encyclopedia, but instead in the 1820s. It seems that the word enlightenment is, the, is a retrospective designation that people gave to this kind of intellectual ferment that happened in the 18th century. Uh, a good way of thinking about it is that we understand uh, the people who were hanging out in the 60s who wore tie-dye and took LSD and listened to the Grateful Dead as hippies, uh, the hippie movement, or as the countercultures. But at the time, people who were doing these sorts of things might not have really felt comfortable with the hippie label. The hippie label is something that we use today to designate this big group of processes and people that we think are vaguely related. Now, let's talk about what that Enlightenment is. The cookie-cutter version of the Enlightenment, the Wikipedia version, the version that you probably got from your dimly remembered history class, is that there was a group of philosopher types who, in Kant's phrase, dared to know. They challenged tradition, and they wrote about it and shared it, and they didn't just keep this challenge to tradition locked in their little coffeehouse clubs, they published it. And they published these challenges in witty prose that entertained a lot of people and changed what the public thought about things. One of the big things that they challenged, which made them a lot of enemies and made them really quite controversial, was organized religion. Uh, Peter Gay calls them the new pagans. But we shouldn't think of these uh, Enlightenment philosophers as, you know, just prickly atheists who might hang out on Reddit. They were highly social. And we shouldn't think of them as merely being writers or philosophers who, you know, are only fit to be talked about in Philosophy 101 classes. This, too, was a social movement. People learned how to be philosophers in literary societies, in salons, in coffee houses. It's called the Republic of Letters. People wrote letters to each other, people wrote books, but they also hung out with one another and chatted long into the night drinking coffee. But from this view, it's a little bit hard to think of an English Enlightenment. There certainly was a Scottish Enlightenment. There's not too much controversy about that. Uh, people like Adam Smith, Adam Ferguson, David Hume, um, they were all definitely enlightened figures. But Scotland, unlike England, um, had really good universities. England didn't have good universities until the 20th century. And these universities in Glasgow and Edinburgh were looking towards uh, developments on the continent for hundreds of years. People spoke French, went to France and Germany. They really were connected in with continental uh, fashions. England, on the other hand, was different. It doesn't seem to be included in this process of witty, smart, challenging new pagans who wanted to take a hammered organized religion. 
And it's telling that you'd be hard-pressed to find an Enlightenment thinker who's English on the level of a Voltaire or a Diderot or a Adam Smith or even of a Benjamin Franklin. The Enlightenment seems to have passed England by. But that was the old Enlightenment that focused on these few French and German and Scottish writers. Over the past 10 to 20 years, historians have expanded the Enlightenment again and again and again. So if you did a search on JSTOR for academic articles about the Enlightenment, you're going to find a lot of uh, results. And the Enlightenment there is going to be mixed with a bunch of different things. In addition to the French Enlightenment, you might get a uh, poor person's Enlightenment, you might get a uh, Scottish Enlightenment, an English Enlightenment, a German Enlightenment, an American Enlightenment, you'll get a Catholic Enlightenment, an Anglican Enlightenment, a feminine Enlightenment, a homosexual Enlightenment, an embodied Enlightenment. I mean, the list just keeps on going on. It seems to be a cottage industry for 18th century historians to add something onto the word enlightenment, and then suddenly it's cool. And from this perspective, people have argued that there was an enlightenment in England. Um, one idea that we've bumped into so far is Joel Moiker's idea of the industrial enlightenment. Um, this is the idea that in the 18th century, the industrial revolution was really spurred uh, by new ways of exchanging knowledge and challenging tradition. The difference from this English Industrial Enlightenment to the French Enlightenment is that the French Enlightenment was all about big ideas, people studying math and being fancy. The English Enlightenment, this Industrial Enlightenment, is practical. It's about a connection between the people who think and read and are connected with new ways of science and these new kinds of men who are tinkering with things. These guys didn't care about the obtuse religious debates and philosophical debates and debates about the nature of knowledge that tied up so many of the French thinkers. No, they were practical people, practical men, usually with, you know, we should imagine them with dirt on their hands, uh, about to get ready with some experiment about breeding new kinds of turnips or like figuring out like new ways of casting iron uh, tubs so that you could create a new kind of vacuum in it. And so if it's so different, if it barely looks like the French Enlightenment, why should we care? Why should we call it the Enlightenment? Well, the argument is that it's the Enlightenment because it uses the same kind of structures of exchanging knowledge that the French Enlightenment did. These people in the Industrial Enlightenment hung out together in clubs and coffee houses, communicated in, you know, mini republics of letters where they would send one another news of their experiments. They had uh, journals in which they would uh, publish their results, and they were doing this all as a way to create new ways of generating status that were outside of the old forms of kind of crummy authority. And there's another strain of arguing for an English Enlightenment uh, that connects this with another big story that I kind of ignore about English history. And that's what's called the Whig uh, story of history. And in this story of history, in this story of Britain, uh, the really, really important moment is 1688, where English political culture gets this beautifully balanced constitution. And this allows it to have this kind of free and untrammeled uh, civil liberty. 
And it's this free civil liberty uh, represented by things like the jury system, the uh, idea of habeas corpus, the English common law. It's this that drives the later developments in the 18th and 19th century. Uh, a lot of people who are called institutional economists really like this. The idea is that basically the state is kept small and efficient and powerful when it needs to be, but it has a lot of trouble stealing stuff from people, letting people just do what they want to do. It's a very libertarian sense of what matters about English history. In this perspective, the English Enlightenment is actually kind of prior to the French Enlightenment. In fact, a lot of the French philosophers uh, got a lot of ideas by fleeing Paris and going and living in London. Um, you know, Voltaire and Diderot wrote very, and Montesquieu wrote very admiringly about British politics after they went over there, which is kind of surprising to an 18th century British historian because, you know, the British politics were kind of really grubby and everybody was arguing all the time and uh, it's not, doesn't seem to be something to laud, but French philosophers really did admire what was happening in Britain. And you could say that a lot of what they were trying to do in the Enlightenment was take that kind of social system and port it over to France and Germany. This, of course, is not what I believe. I find it a kind of a jingoistic and a little bit too triumphalist about what happens in the 18th century, but it's a different way of us connecting what's happening in England with these important things that are happening in Europe. And there's a philosophical strain to this as well, which might be how you've bumped into this idea of an English Enlightenment before. Uh, big names, of course, are the political theorists. Um, the gigantic two are Hobbes and Locke, uh, who you can see as both attempting to create political systems in the wake of the two great uh, political controversies of the 17th century, the Civil War and the Glorious Revolution. In short, uh, Hobbes believes that uh, what you need is a strong central authority to keep everybody in check. And for Locke, there's more a sense of there being a, a collective civil society uh, that is contractually, you know, created to, you know, keep everybody together by bounds of innate sociability. And also, there is a great deal of uh, advanced work being done by English scientists. Um, the greatest, perhaps, is Isaac Newton, who we've bumped into, I think, because of his work in the Great Recoinage, but we haven't talked a lot about how Newtonian ideas of being able to measure the world through regular uh, mathematical formula really inspired a ton of this anti-traditional outlook. The idea here was, look, Newton came along and swept away all of this past clutter and was able to see clearly that there are regular rules for how the physical world works. This makes it possible not only for people to find regular rules about how the physical world works even more and extending Newton's work, but also opens up the promise that we can make regular rules about how society works. And we might be able to even extend this into a uh, cultural argument and connect this with work of Maxine Bergs, who argues that a lot of the products of the early Industrial Revolution um, were not popular necessarily because they were cheaper, but they were popular because they were marketed as new, as breaking with tradition, as being part of this English 
idea of anti-establishment thinking, this this coolness, this this you know riotous sense that we're going to break the old world and create the new all over again, and it is going to be good. Now, in the end, I think that all of this labeling game of trying to figure out whether England ever had enlightenment is actually a bit of a distraction. I feel like we're playing conceptual pin on the donkey. What we do in history is we name things to make them coherent. We name things to make arguments about things being part of the same process, belonging to the same family, having broad similarities of cause and effect, or just kind of being stylistically similar. We name these things to explain, to tell stories. And the Enlightenment now, I think, is not the greatest way of telling the story of the 18th century. It's too capacious. It also distracts us because it has so many connotations of bewigged philosophs talking over coffee, making big hand gestures, writing fancy books in, you know, cursive ink script. And often the idea of the Enlightenment has been really useful when people have nailed it down really specifically into a set of textual and social practices that are kind of novel in the late 17th and early 18th century. I really like that kind of uh, uh, process, uh, often associated with uh, looking at the Enlightenment as a form of media. I feel that in my own work, I've been tied up sometimes with trying to figure out whether this thing or that thing is enlightened, and I think that it's kind of a distraction to actually the main course, which for me is something entirely different. For me, it's something much broader that we can think of the Enlightenment as an instance of. For me, the big story of the 18th and 19th centuries is a revolution of organizations, that in this time, we get this kind of script for how to make an organization that begins to spread. And as it spread, it gains power. And as it gains power, it grows bigger. And as it grows bigger, more and more of life is wrapped up in organizations. From this perspective, whatever started in the 1700s that might, we might call the Enlightenment still continues on today. It continues on in things like this, in people talking to one another over different kinds of media to share ideas. It continues when you get together with friends and strangers and argue with them. It continues even on that symbol of degeneracy in America today, the YouTube comment thread, where strangers start to argue with one another. Thanks very much for listening today to this episode of Making of Historian. I have to thank Duncan Barton, the newly unemployed Duncan Barton, um, for uh, the art. And I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Share us on social media. Somebody actually tweeted about us, which I think was cool. Um, light a vote of candle in my honor. Do all those things that you do with media on the internet that you like. Um, and I will see you guys tomorrow.